every man dies, not every man truly lives. Anybody? No? All right. Braveheart, William Wallace and Braveheart. Every man dies, not every man truly lives. One of my favorite movie lines of all time portrayed by Mel Gibson in that movie. But life isn't a movie. It is quite real. It is literally a matter of life and death. As those of us gathered here yesterday for the memorial service were quite soberly uh, reminded and God's word reminds us of this too. And so we come to the second portion in Philippians chapter 1. We pick up in verse 18 and finish off the chapter. Again, we're, we're looking to do Philippians in big chunks this summer. Two weeks per chapter is, is the plan. And we'll see how the Lord leads. Um, so we pick up in your pew Bible. This is page 1164. Again, you have it on the back of your sermon outline. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to see you again. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing story. It's, uh, it's a very intensely personal letter from uh, a missionary, uh, early believer, who was persecuted and, and arrested because of his faith and because of his proclamation that Jesus is Messiah and that Jesus rose from the dead. And so help us to be not only inspired by his example and his courage, but help us to also in our own lives 
to persevere, uh, sometimes in the midst of difficult circumstances, and also to be bold, uh, to be bold to speak a word for Christ and to encourage each other, to cheer each other on to continue in the faith. Would you now do your work, O Holy Spirit, and illumine the eyes of our hearts and help us to apprehend the gospel and indeed to walk in manner worthy, manners worthy of our calling in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Letter A, no shame. There's no shame. There's no dishonor in suffering for the Lord. Verse 20. Rather, Paul rejoices when Christ is proclaimed. We saw last week, the first part of verse 18. And he rejoices even in his imprisonment. To rejoice literally means to delight in God's grace. The root word for joy or rejoicing is the same word in the Greek New Testament for the grace of God. There's no shame, Paul says so. Paul rejoices in the knowledge of his ultimate deliverance. Paul resolves to honor the Lord either way, whatever the outcome. And Paul relies on a couple of resources in his situation. So Paul rejoices in the knowledge of his ultimate deliverance. Uh, deliverance, the word here, is the same for salvation. And similarly to the Old Testament, King David, chiefly, when he talks about deliver, you know, save me, O Lord, deliver me. In the Old Testament, King David is often talking about bad circumstances. Somebody's coming for me. They're out to get me. Somebody's coming for me. Save me, O God. Deliver me, O God. A lot of times he is speaking of temporal deliverance while recognizing, paying a nod to, the fact that one day Savior will come and he will have eternal salvation as well. It's kind of the now and not yet, the already and the not yet in that regard. And similarly, Paul here speaks while his condition, his status is that of a prisoner. He is hopeful for temporal uh, release from his circumstances. Verse 26, he's, he's hoping to go visit them again. And actually, this was during his first imprisonment in Rome. Later, he, you know, he was released, and later he had a worse one. And so he, he has that in mind, but he also has eternal salvation in mind and knows that one way or the other, whether it's on his preferred timetable, which he actually believes he is going to see in this situation, for a couple of reasons we'll look at in a moment, or in the long run, he can play the long game if that's what's necessary. He knows that ultimately the Lord will deliver him, and it will result, if not in his earthly vindication, in his eternal salvation through Christ. And so Paul resolves to honor the Lord either way, by life or by death. And Paul rela relies on two related resources here that he mentions in our passage. Number one, the prayers of God's people, and number two, the help of the Holy Spirit. The prayers of the people and the help of the Holy Spirit. The prayers of the people. We're not going to look at this one, but if you're a jotter, 2 Corinthians 1 is well known for uh, talking about the God of all comfort and all that. But look what it says about the prayers of God's people, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11. Read verses 8 through 11, particularly verse 
11. The prayers of God peop God's people, he believed, were meaningful, that God has appointed, that God has ordained the prayers of God's people. And second, the help of the Holy Spirit. And help here is a rare word. In the New Testament, it means to supply or provision, and it refers to the Spirit's lavish resources. And when I hear that word lavish, that makes me think of Ephesians chapter 1, at least in the NAS, it renders it, it says that, that the grace of God has been lavished upon his people. Lavish, it's luxuriant, it's abundant, there's an, there's an excess of it. And so Paul depends on both of these things. You know, the Bible teaches what theologians call an antinomy, things that seem to be contrary but are not. The Bible teaches both human responsibility, the prayers of God's people, and divine sovereignty, the work of the Holy Spirit at the same time. And it's through these two resources that Paul draws courage. The help of the Holy Spirit, just a little mini rabbit trail, a little aside. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, we believe there are three persons in the, God, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're equal in what the theologians of old called substance, what you or I might call their essence. One commentator says, Christian hope makes the outcome certain, but leaves open both the time of fulfillment and the means by which the goal is reached. The outcome is certain, but the time of fulfillment, that's open. It's open to God. And the passage here speaks of his eager expectation in verse 20. His eager expectation, his earnest longing, and, and the word that is used here is used only one other place in the New Testament, also by Paul in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 19. We do well to read Romans 8, verses 18 and 19. Maybe I'll do that real quick since it's just a couple. Romans 8, 18 and 19, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, and then get this, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing, same thing, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And the root word in the original language means literally to outstretch your head. The word head is in this Greek word, to outstretch your head. As, uh, think about uh, the Olympics coming up. There are going to be Olympics this summer, aren't there? Uh, a runner straining, stretching for the tape, stretching their head. Eager expectation, earnest longing to be with the Lord. Let her be in your outline, life and death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Can't really sum it up any better than Paul did for us. And Paul speaks of choosing. In the NAS, says, I do not know which to choose, for I am hard-pressed in both directions. Paul speaks of choosing. What does that mean? It does not mean that he has a death wish. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's eager to die. 
I believe it means that he knew that in his situation as a political prisoner of Rome with the Jewish leadership set against him, he could have forced the issue and he could have brought it to a head and he could have said things against Caesar, even more inflammatory things about the lordship of Jesus Christ that he knew would hasten the day of his execution. Paul was as wise as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. Look at, look at how he testifies in, uh, before officials at the end of the book of Acts to see his wisdom there. How he sometimes appeals to his status as a Roman citizen and ultimately makes the gospel of Christ crucified and risen very clear. So I think when he says choosing, you know, he's not going to OD on pills or hang himself in the cell or anything dire like that. Uh, but he's saying that if he presses the issue, he, he knew which buttons to press. And he could have forced the issue. But more importantly, to live is Christ. Just in our paragraph here, it speaks of Christ seven times. Christ. What is, who is Christ? It's not his surname. It's not his last name, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. It's a title. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the coming king. In my, in my devotions, um, I'm reading in Mark's gospel, and it just occurred to me yesterday, I think it was, yesterday morning, where, where Jesus announces, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near you. I've kind of always pondered that and kind of puzzled over it a bit. What does that mean it's near, it's at hand? Well, I know it's because Jesus is present. A little mini epiphany, maybe it's obvious to you guys, takes me a while. I thought yesterday, the reason he says this is because he's the king. The kingdom is here because the king is on the scene and he is announcing himself as king. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live, for Paul, verse 22, will mean fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. What, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? I'd say, well, fruit in two aspects. Disciple making, and we'll talk more about that in the next point. Disciple making, sharing the faith, building up believers, helping people to continue on in the faith. And character development, right? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, all that. Fruitful labor. He finds this more necessary, verse 24. The greater need is serving others. And he's convinced he will see these people. Again, remember, last week emphasized he knew these folks. Lydia, the jailer, and all the rest. And so he's serving the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit and in partnership with fellow gospel workers. But to die is gain. It's, it's advantageous to be with Christ. It's very much better. It's far better, verse 23. Far better to depart, to pull up stakes and break camp says the old tent maker himself. You might go with me over to 2 Corinthians 5. Just a 
couple of pages earlier from our passage. 2 Corinthians 5, the first five verses say this about our earthly tents and to die is gain. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, speaking of our bodies, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly, our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It says it, 2 Corinthians 5, it says also Ephesians 1, the Spirit is a guarantee, a pledge, a down payment, the earnest money of what is to come. So this language that he employs here talking about die is gain, to depart, is that idea of breaking camp. And he looks forward to breaking camp and being forever with the Lord one day, one day, but not yet. Either way, our bold brother will not stop talking about Jesus. Letter C in your outline, discipleship. That's part of the fruitful labor. Discipleship, verses 25 and 26. Discipleship, if I'm to summarize Paul here, is helping others make progress in the faith. That's your first bullet point. Helping others make progress in the faith. By the way, another little aside. At least two times, verses 25 and 27, the faith. When it speaks of the faith like that, it's talking about what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, the body of belief, what, the gospel, Christian doctrine about who Jesus is and what he has done. That's the faith. Now, you hopefully have faith, trust, and personal reliance on the Lord Jesus, but the faith is what we believe, our doctrine, our teaching, the good news about Jesus. And Paul wants to help others make progress in the faith. I mean, we see this when we get to chapter 4, right? He gives those specific instructions, naming names, telling people to get along. He sees that as part of their progress in the faith. Progress is overcoming obstacles with God's power. It's rising above your circumstances. Remember, this is a prison epistle. This letter was written while he was under arrest. Helping others make progress so that they would conduct themselves in a worthy fashion, verse 27. To conduct oneself literally means to live out your citizenship. Paul's going to talk about citizenship later in the letter. And I already mentioned just in passing that sometimes he appealed to his own status as a Roman citizen. Um, the rights and privileges associated with that. Hey, you can't beat me. You can't imprison me without charges and fair due process and all that. He would appeal to his status as a Roman citizen. Well, we have dual citizenship, right? We have some sort of citizenship in this world, in this country or your country of origin, 
and then ultimately that citizenship is in heaven. And we are to conduct ourselves worthily in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. So he sees discipleship as helping others make progress in the faith as the gospel advances. We saw this last week, verse 12. Not only is Paul a pioneering missionary blazing a trail, but the believers there at Philippi, probably uh, the members of Lydia's household, probably some of her friends there down by that place of prayer by the river, and others who believed in Christ, the elders and the deacons. Clement mentioned chapter 4. They're moving forward in their sanctification, in the sense of progressive sanctification of, of Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like Christ. And it should be delightful because helping others make progress in the faith, he says, is with joy. And remember, that's, I think, the major theme of this prison epistle. Joy. Choose joy. He wants to help these people advance. Practice these things, he says elsewhere, 1 Timothy 4. Practice these things that all may see your progress. Continue in the things you have learned. I define discipleship as teaching in the context of a relationship. It's written for you there in the notes, your second bullet point. Teaching in the context of a relationship. Paul to Lydia's family, Sheriff's family, to Euodia and all the rest of them, and he does some speaking the truth in love, doesn't he? That's necessary for believers to make progress in the faith. And then he speaks of unity in Christ, letter D. Verses 27 and 28, unity in Christ. Oneness in the truth. One mind, one spirit. What spirit is that? It's the Holy Spirit. You can get people to be united around other causes. You can get people who, who are at each other's throats politically. You can get them all to stand up and cheer together for the favorite ball team. You can get unity in different venues, in different arenas in life. Christian unity never comes at the expense of the truth. Christian unity is rooted around the gospel. There is a so-called sect of Christendom out there that they lead with this idea of unity but if you spend any time among them or examine their doctrinal statements they don't, they don't believe anything they're, they're all agreed they're all agreed that anything goes that's not our perspective we are united in the gospel of Christ Oneness in the truth, standing firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel, striving together side by side. And then there's, there's no fear. Not only is Paul not ashamed, he's not alarmed. Standing firm. You know the old adage, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Standing firm, persevering in godly living. Striving for the gospel it means to seek it jointly. It's teamwork in the truth. And striving here, the word in the original language literally means uh, as athletes struggle together towards a goal. 
And so, again, from the sports world, you know, uh, you competed on a team. Uh, even, even golf, golf is an individual sport, right? But then they do Riders Cup or wh whatever it is, you know, various things where they're pooling their points or scores. Athletes struggling together towards a goal. Well, our gospel striving together side by side is more important than that. And it's rooted around the truth of God's word. And the result is there's no fear. We're not alarmed. Paul wasn't. He urged the Philippians not to be. And so, by corollary, neither do we need to be alarmed by who? By our opponents. Well, who are our opponents? Well, I'll tell you who our opponents are not. It's not our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not people from different denominations than us. It's not our spouse. Those are not your opponents. Opponents are those who reject Christ. And it's a sign of judgment, that the, the, the fact that they are under judgment already. Everybody knows John 3.16. What about John 3.18? If you don't believe in Christ, the only Son of God, you're under judgment already. And they need to repent and believe the gospel. So why would you be surprised when there is opposition? Maybe it's in your extended family. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your employment situation. Much less society at large. But when you personally are ostracized or shouted down or marginalized, why would you be surprised? You don't need to be alarmed. And then verses 29 and 30, gifts from God to close off the passage. And this, this is so excellent. I'm going to read verses 29 and 30 again so they don't just slip from our view. Philippians 1, the last two verses. For to, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. They, the Philippians were aware of Paul's persecution. Uh, it goes back to the founding of the church in, in Acts 16. And that you now hear that he has again, that he's incarcerated. Gifts from God. There are two of them in verse 29. Belief in Christ, number one. That's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? Belief in Christ. But number two is also a gift. It's suffering for his sake. This is a gift from God. Belief in Christ, even the faith that we have in Jesus, is not from ourselves. It is God's doing. We'll have more on that in a couple of weeks. We confess that together with the well-known Ephesians 2.8, by grace, by grace you say through faith, and that not of yourselves. The faith isn't something that we just kind of have to kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or something latent within us or whatever that we have to activate or something. The faith is external to us. Belief and reliance and dependence and trust. That comes only as God the Holy Spirit does a work on your heart. 
like Lydia, opening her heart to believe. So the first gift from God in verse 29 is belief in Christ. But the second gift goes hand in hand with it, suffering for his sake, enduring hardship. They persecuted Christ, and we are not greater than our master, John 15. Again, why, why would we be surprised when people reject us? When people revile us, when people scoff or mock or ridicule or laugh? By the time we get to chapter 3, Paul talks about leaving things in the past, a spiritual pedigree or whatever, leaving in the past and pressing on because of the value, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And how does he define knowing, knowing the Lord in, in chapter 3? To know him in the power of his resurrection, that's the fun part, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. That goes with it. it it's part and parcel of the territory, friends. Uh, another man um, I heard speak from China said, you Americans think that persecution is bad. In China, we see persecution as being good for the church. It causes the church to grow. That was his perspective. The fellowship of his sufferings. Paul shared in them. The Philippians shared in them. And so will we if we seek to live godly in Christ Jesus. One old commentator says, God has granted you the high privilege of suffering for Christ. This is the surest sign that he looks upon you with favor. This isn't a, a curse. This isn't the bad part that nobody told you about. This is the gospel. This is a gift from God. He has graced you with this. He has granted this to you. Rejoice and be glad in that day that you're counted worthy to suffer for the one who suffered for us. Let's pray. Lord, these are indeed matters of life and death. And we want to believe what Paul believed. We want to emulate his faith. We want to believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we want to believe that our sufferings in the flesh are, are worth it in the end. We want to believe that, as we saw earlier, that the sufferings of this present world are nothing. They pale in comparison to the glory that is yet to be revealed, and we have need of endurance. Holy Spirit endurance to continue in the things that we have learned. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Christ and him crucified and risen. Amen. Our next song is not found in your Trinity hymnal, but you should have a half-page insert on your seat. Look around if you're not near one where you can share. There are more. We're on the back table. Ben can bring it around. Raise your hand if you need one.
it's probably fairly familiar. It's called, they'll know we are Christians by our love. One mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's stand and sing. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's sing together once more. be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the
back together Wednesday night right here, 6.30. The topic is New Testament worship. Lord bless you. said you had a couple weeks away. No, glad to have you again. Remind me of your names, please. Bob? Bob Veal. Bob Okay. This is my wife, Kate. Kate. Bob and Kate. Tom. So glad to have you here today. Right. Oh, did you? Yes, yes. He, uh, his faith has inspired me. I try to pray regularly for the persecuted church, and the situation of early rain churches come to me from, I guess, largely through one of my seminary professors who has spent time over there, and uh, so I try to stay up to date on it. And his declaration, what was it called? His declaration of some or other disobedience uh, by Pastor Juan before he was imprisoned. Uh, just was so inspiring. Uh, I think it's like uh, kind of akin to letters from a Birmingham jail, but uh, very inspiring.